This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my times radio show. You can listen live Monday, Friday, 10 till 1 on your DB radio, on your smart speaker, on your Times radio app. And particularly when a big news story breaks, I don't know, somebody's resigned. Stick the radio on. Times radio will always have it live and uninterrupted by, you know, the things they do on the other side. Right, coming up on today's episode, 40 years of Blackadder favourite TV sitcoms. And we've been taking a look at the politics of it all. Touched on politics in, in every series, really. And, really interestingly, loads of the cast went on to do political things. So coming up today, we're going to hear from Tony Robinson, Miriam Margulies, and dip into the archive, my chat with Richard Curtis. So that's coming up in just a moment, the politics of Black Adam. But first, as we always do at the end of the week, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Nadine Doris didn't want to do this. You know, the last thing I would want to do would be to cause a by-election in my constituency. And then she did, because she's busy. Presenting a show on Talk TV and writing a column in the Daily Mail. And I'm an author. And to be an MP, you know, come on, something's got to, got to give. And then she didn't, because... A girl from Breck Road in Liverpool had something offered to her, removed by two privileged posh boys... Uh, we learn that the guy who won't accept he lost thinks he's the real victim here. Say political persecution like something straight out of a fascist or a communist nation. No, not him, the other guy. Boris Johnson has apparently quit Parliament uh, as an MP. Which this guy in Uxbridge wasn't happy about. The lefties, the loony lefties of this country will one day see what they've done. We are being genocised. We learn that Michael Hasseltine was unimpressed by Boris Johnson's winning streak. Hitler won the general election in Germany. We learn that Boris fan David Campbell, David Campbell Bannerman is also keeping things in proportion. This uh, Stalinist trial, this reproach. Dave, David, so David, David no, 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 wait a moment, David. It is offensive to people who died in Russia to call this Stalinist. Look at the disproportionality. Look at the... Uh, uh, David, you can't say disproportionality, then say it's Stalinist. This brings the rule of law into disrepute. We learn that all those new peers better watch out. Being in the House of Lords is really tiring. Having sat till four o'clock in the morning the other week two o'clock in the morning yesterday or this morning well luckily lord addington had the energy to bring us this top tip if you want people to do things like wild swimming boating etc 
making sure they're not coming face to face with a turd, to be perfectly honest, is a very good idea. And that is what we learned this week. Right, let's take a look at what's going on in the news with our Friday columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, every Friday morning is night at the Marriott, but we, we do have an Indian night. Morning, India. Morning. Uh, but sadly, no James Marriott. Uh, we don't know why. He emailed in at 10 o'clock last night, say, wasn't he? So we don't know if he'd forgotten or if he was drunk uh, and he's still in bed. We don't know. He's gone missing. But luckily, we've got a much better James. We've got James Heal from The Spectator. Morning, James. <laughs> Morning. Do you, know, do you know where James Marriott is? I don't, sorry. It's cost of living crisis. We've got the discount, James, here today. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think we all agree it's an upgrade. Now, uh, let's. Uh, really interesting question posed by a listener. Stephen got in touch this morning and said, How do you think it would have panned out if Boris Johnson had not lied to Parliament? In fact, if when challenged about the parties, he'd fessed up and said, Yes, it's a fair cop, we were working hard, and regrettably, there were some parties, and I'm very sorry. India. I love the idea of this sort of parallel universe where he'd just fronted it up. I mean, I actually wonder whether he'd still be Prime Minister if he'd done that. Yeah, absolutely. I think a really, really, really good rule of life, generally in all of life, but particularly for politicians, is to own your behaviour. I can't bear the wriggling. So, you know, it's like, who broke my favourite mug? Who spilled the coffee on the sofa? Who misled Parliament? It's kind of all the same thing. You know, if you're bound to rights, admit to whatever it is you've done, and then everybody can move on or try to move on. And if you double down on the lie, everybody gets stuck in Groundhog Day, which is exactly where we are now. You know, there's been tons of things are happening in the world, and we're stuck with this pecking story it just won't go away and every time he opens his mouth he makes it worse and i think every time he opens his mouth he reduces his chance i mean he they're they're down to you know minus whatever but he reduces his chances of ever uh making a political comeback if indeed he wants to make i mean i'm quite baffled by why he would want to frankly i would just kind of carry on giving speeches and writing books and earn millions but anyway yes I think it would things would have been very different. Because James, if we take ourselves right the way back to December 2021, I remember the first time the story broke. In fact, somebody joined this to my attention. I think I tweeted saying this: "This isn't going to move a single vote." Because I remember thinking that you know, the 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 fact that staff in Number Ten working very late on the on the COVID inquiry may have had I don't know a glass of warm wine at the end of the day seemed. Mm the sort of thing that would make people cross, but fundamentally didn't change anything. But the fact mm. that Boris Johnson doubled down on it for so much, um, and actually it was, you know, it was him denying that it had happened, which led to Sue Gray, which led to the Privileges Committee, was there would have been no mechanism to remove him. But I don't think, James, if, if he'd just apologised. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the whole thing about the Boris Johnson case is that he's become sort of imprisoned by events and they've taken on a life of his own. And the key point is that they were never able to kind of cut off party gay at any point reading the privileges committee investigation it's so clear that some of those whatsapp messages show they were kind of trying to react to a media line and they were never able to kind of get their narrative out in front they were Mm. trying to go along go along go along it was classic kind of johnson government strategy it was 
all tactics, no strategy. Uh, and they ended up kind of imprisoned in all of this. So I do think the counterfactual question about, you know, what happened if he'd apologised is a really interesting one. Ultimately, I think Partygate is obviously a part about that deception, but also it's about the fact that Boris Johnson introduced these rules in the first place. Understandable, of course, but it didn't really play to who he was. He was a roundhead, not a, he, was a cavalier, he was a cavalier, not a roundhead. He wasn't a Puritan, and yet he was doing these authoritarian rules. So I do wonder, perhaps, if he'd come out and admitted, put his hands up, and also maybe done something like, you know, an amnesty for all the fines during COVID and said, look, we had to have them in place at the time, but now we've passed COVID, when we're going to have a complete amnesty for everyone, um, then it could have moved on. But the reason why Partygate never really went away was partly because of all these new developments, because they kept denying it, frankly. But also, still, we are still seeing right now, in June 2023, people going through the courts to pay COVID fines, etc., because of the backlog. So although you know, people will say, oh, why are people going on about COVID? It's a dead issue, Partygate, etc. It's still very much a live one for people across the country. Um, and, and in terms of what he does do next, James, um, the 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 witless—I'm going to say witless—speculation um, is widespread this morning. He's going to go on a nationwide tour uh, to discover just how popular he is. He, some speculation in one of the papers today, he might run as London mayor as an independent. Just you know, the man who who, who wasn't confident he could win in his own constituency in London. Uh, what? Considering the possibility of going up against the whole of uh, of the Remainer capital city, uh, we we discover he's going to be writing a the, the shock discovery. He's going to be writing a um, uh, a column for the the editor of a newspaper he tried to give a knighthood to. Uh, what do you think he'll do next? Well, I saw one report the other day saying he might be my new editor, so I might just use my words carefully. <laughs> um, I, th- I think the thing is that Boris Johnson will always be a force. It can be a more kind of a destructive one than a kind of constructive one necessarily. Um, there's been a lot of report, I think, slightly bullish briefings to the time stay from some described Sunak allies that he's finished, etc. But he may be finished in Parliament. But don't forget, of course, it was the Mayor of London that enabled him to get that base in the first place. So I think there could be kind of other avenues, electoral or otherwise, for him to continue to exert influence. Of course, he loves a good Churchill comparison. Churchill left office at 80 and Boris Johnson's only going to be 59 on Monday. Uh, so I I think that he will continue to be uh, a kind of influence in British politics, uh, although it remains to be seen how many he'll continue to get a hearing with. I mean, once he was a 50% politician, you know, someone who could win elections, etc. Now it seems his you know, popularity is such that I think only about sort of 15, 20% of the public tend to believe him. So he's more of a 15% rather than a 50% one. Uh, but that can still be important. I think he still does have a vocal minority within the Conservative Party who, who do look to him and will forever hold him great, uh, in high esteem for the 2016 refer- Brexit referendum yeah. and the 2019 electoral victory. Indeed, it seems to me he, 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 he could do with getting a better agent or something, someone who would know how to, you know, just disappear for a bit, dial things down, and then mm-hmm. come back later on. Instead, like you said, it's a sort of verbal diarrhoea. It's like a celebrity who can't get off Twitter. Um, yeah, he's stuck in a corner. He's stuck himself in a corner, and the only thing he can do is attack. And so I think, I think Boris Johnson has some very admirable qualities. He's very good at what he does, and I think he needs to take some time away um, and and revert revert himself back to the kind of decent Boris who people really liked instead of instead of apparently insisting on becoming the the sort of cheapo Trump Boris who is incredibly off-putting even to people who have liked him in the past so yeah I do think he needs a better agent he also you know he's now got the means to have a really nice life he's his wife is expecting another baby I mean just have a nice time stop shouting it's fine if I were just hearing from uh, Steve Swinford, political editor of the Times, says uh, Boris Johnson's telling supporters not to oppose the Privileges Committee report in the Commons next week. He says he wants to move on 
and he doesn't see it as having any practical effects. So that's interesting. And once again, mm. yeah, it may, maybe, maybe the fact that currently only seven people said they were going to oppose it might have slightly played a part in that. Uh, but that's interesting. If he doesn't want to oppose it, because if they don't oppose it, then there won't be a vote, and then that actually removes the headache for, for Rishi Sunak. Mm. Um, so that he doesn't have to worry about going into it. Well, let's move on. Into, let's talk about Rishi Sunak then, and, uh, and Keir Starmer. Uh, which of those two would you most like to go for a pint with, James? Well, given that Rishi Sunak doesn't drink, I'd have to go for uh, Keir Starmer probably. Um, well, he could have a he could have a Fanta while you had a lager. I think in this business, normally something stronger at the end of the day is probably best. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that uh, look, you've got this polling out this week in the Spectator talking about who Red Wall voters would want to have a drink with, and uh, you know, thirty-two percent said Keir Starmer, twenty percent said Rishi Sunak, and that was quite interesting. I was talking to one Red Wall Tory MP who said that you know what what they found in twenty nineteen was going around was that Boris Johnson uh, had this kind of personal appeal for particularly some um, Red Wall men um, who basically said that they kind of liked the fact that he was non PC, did his own thing, etc., sort of slightly alpha figure. Um, so I do, I think it's quite interesting that how quickly Labour have been able to kind of rebuild support in. Red Wall and on current trends, they expect to take all those kind of 40 seats that have never voted Tory before uh, in 2019 back at the next election. So that's really um, quite impressive, uh, impressively done. And I think it's partly because Rishi Sunak is maybe not seen as in touch with them as Boris Johnson was. Yeah, maybe a little bit dry. Maybe people know he doesn't. Maybe people don't know he doesn't drink. Is this a slippery slope, though, um, India? Because there used to be a time when Boris Johnson was the guy that everyone wanted to have a pint with, at the risk of talking yeah, but- about him again. One one of the reasons everybody wanted to have a pint with uh, Boris is that he wasn't Jeremy Corbyn. I think. <laughs> I think. I think. I think that played a big part in it. Yeah, you would want to have a pint with Keir Starmer. I think Rishi Sunak. There used to be um, years ago a bar in Paris that only served mineral water, and it served fifty different kinds or seventy different <laughs> kinds. I can't remember. And you can imagine the sort of people who went to it. And I would imagine that if in whatever, 2005, Rishi Sunak found himself in Paris, he'd have gone to the water bar. And that's not very red wall. So, yeah, I'm not surprised by, um, <laughs> by, by the, the, the survey. But all these things, I just think are really interesting. The, the insight, if you ask a slightly different question, uh, the insight you can get to how people are feeling about them. I mean, it's why the, our focus groups are so interesting because you, you just sort of say, sum up this person in a word. And even though people are saying they're going to vote Labour and it turns out they don't like Keir Starmer, I think he slimy seems to come up quite a lot, which I was quite surprised. So Fenton's been in such said, I would love to go to the pub with Keir Starmer to persuade him to get an acting coach so he doesn't sound like an accountant. No offence to accountants. <laughs> he needs to sound passionate as well as feel it. What, what's your what's your tipple of choice, James? Oh, God. Uh, depends who's paying, but uh, normally me. So I'd probably just go for uh, a nice, you know, nice pint of uh, London Pride. It's quite nice. My good. What about you, India? Well, I don't drink anymore, so um, going to the pub is not super, super fun. In fact, uh, yeah, I'm heading towards <laughs> the water bar. No, I'd have Sipsmith or, you know, fake gin or something. Is that good? I've never had that. I'm never going to work out if it's if it's better to just have something completely different. It's quite nice. No, I know what you mean. It's like vegetarian sausages, isn't it? You can just don't bother trying to be <laughs> pork because you're clearly not. Um, but no, they are quite good. They're incredibly expensive, those botanical drinks, because yeah. I think they're properly distilled in the same manner as spirits but they are quite nice and they're, they're refreshing with like lots of ice and some slice of orange on a hot day let's bring in harry wallop now who's written a piece for the times today about i hadn't realized this jen said gen z demanding bare minimum mondays i didn't even know that that existed basically should the young people stop thinking that work should be fun all the time harry 
<laughs> well, I, that's a little simplistic, but yes, uh, I think the issue is, so there was, there was a big phrase last year called quiet quitting, uh, where sort of uh, workers would surlily refuse to do anything than their contractual obligations and, and go home on the dot at 5pm and not turn up to, you know, not answer any calls outside of office hours and everyone said oh that's terribly negative so the new buzzword is quiet thriving uh, horrible american <laughs> hr <laughs> jargon uh, but this is a sort of a positive spin on quiet quitting which we will turn up to work and we'll, you know we'll gladly work while we're there but we only really want to do the bits that make us thrive and the bits we don't really like like the long meetings or the answering emails outside of office hours, well, we, we should be brave enough to tell our bosses that's just not on. And of course, it's a very tight labour market at the moment. So a lot of bosses feel slightly under pressure that they have to cave into these demands. And this came initially from uh, a conversation with a chef. Yes, it's quite a well-known chef guy called Tom Aikins, who uh, people with long memories um, may, may remember he was... Uh, he was involved in a bit of hot water, actually, technically a hot pallet knife, uh, where he was uh, accused, and I think he accepts that he behaves appallingly. Uh, he branded one of his sous chefs with a hot pallet knife. But this was, this was over 20 years ago, and he was saying that back then, uh, chefs regularly, when they started out in the industry, would work these absurd 90-hour weeks, and you'd finish the week with a raging headache. Um, and there was an element of sort of for Yorkshireman, the, the Monty Python yeah. sketch of, well, in my day, in my day, and junior, I remember a perennial news story when I was growing up with junior doctors working 100-hour weeks and falling asleep in operating theatres. Um, and, and certainly on Fleet Street, a lot yeah. of my sort of fellow journalists would work by day on a trade magazine or a local newspaper, and then they take a, a, a shift on a f proper Fleet mm. Street newspaper, a night shift, and then go back into work till 2 in the morning and go back into work on their day job at 9 a.m., and I suppose there's an element, obviously those were bad days. We're not, we're not, you know, that's not healthy. But, but should it be maybe not a bad thing for just a, a year or two when you're starting out in the world of work to understand what it is required to get on in life? Yeah, put your, yeah, put your back into it for a little bit rather than clock watching. What do you think? We'll come to James as our resident young person in a minute. But in <laughs> India, uh, do you want to join in this, this game as a full Yorkshireman? Uh, no, but I do think that I do think that it's quite nice to not work fifteen-hour days with somebody barking in your face all day long, existing in a state of terror. Um, I, do, I, I think that's a kind of I think that's a very kind of toxic work culture. And um, I guess I'm kind of in the middle. You know, I think everybody should take their dog to the office. I think that would be really nice. I'm, um, I'm up for that. I'd bring my dog in. Totally bring my dog anywhere. Um, but I, but I, but I also think that an element of graft, you know, that you, you need to at least at some point in your life know what it feels like to work really, really hard at things you don't particularly enjoy doing in order to get to where you want to get to. I think, I think, the kind of cosseting and babying aspect of young adults is um, is is not brilliant. I kind of get why they want to be babied and cosseted, but but this is perhaps a little bit too far. What about you, James? Do you feel uh, babied and cosseted? <laughs> no comment. Um, look, I think, um, yeah, I, I think that what the question is about sort of the culture with young people in the country. And I think that you look at the economic model where you've seen sort of 15 years of 
not much growth. You've seen the kind of pressures on people in terms of, you know, they're not getting increased pay, et cetera, in the workplace. There will obviously be the debate then around conditions. And I think employers are going to be looking at how they change things. I think we can all agree some of the things, the toxic culture that went on kind of 20 years ago or any kind of bullying, et cetera. I mean, that's all got to change. You've seen the stories, the allegations around sort of uh, Chris Benodi in the news this week. I mean, that kind of stuff, it's all sort of changed in recent years. And I think that's almost that's broadly a good thing. Um, but then the question is that comes around sort of things like four day working weeks. And, you know, say South Cambridgeshire Council is, is trialing this period about doing a four-day working week to um, allow more staff and their words to be more productive. So it's only going to be an issue that rises and rises. And I do think perhaps it's kind of workers responding to incentives in the labour market. You've got a very tight labour market in the moment. Anyone basically who wants a job in this country can get one. So I think that it's going to be something we see more of in the future is kind of a generational difference of attitudes in how we approach the workplace. And young people are not seeing much when, the, when their pay packet go up. So they want to see you know better working conditions. Um, Harry, it also it slightly occurred to me thinking that actually the whole idea of working harder when you're younger, when you you know you haven't got you're not got married or you haven't got children, whatever you you put the effort in at the beginning, get you know, build up your career, and then you can slightly ease off and just do three hours on the radio. Well, <laughs> I think this was in some ways, this is Tom Aiken's interesting point. It, it, he wasn't complaining that, that young chefs now expect to work a four-day week and only 40 hours uh, a, a week. Uh, what he was worried about was that the very act of having a, a healthy work-life balance was sort of partly responsible for the death of ambition. Uh, and in the in the old, old days, you kind of strived and grafted early on in your career because you could see that, that actually ultimately this would lead to becoming a head chef or if you're in a newspaper to getting a nice position on a national newspaper. And, and you would be rewarded for all that hard work and you would climb up the ladder. A lot of young people now just aren't interested in the ladder. They just want to have a nice, comfortable, uh, healthy uh, working environment. And I, I completely get that. But we do need one or two people to have ambition uh, to, you know, drive the economy forward. Um, uh, I suppose, yes. Yeah, it's so interesting. Because I don't want to, I want to say all young people are annoying, but they are quite annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you, James? 28. No, you're not that oh. young. You're not that young. No, we've, we've, well, got, we've got a couple of 12 year olds work on my show. We don't, we don't even pay them. <laughs> this is a good test. In 10 years' time, it'll be me there moaning and saying it's all been never easier, etc. You know, I'll be one of the four Yorkshiremen, even though I'm from Surrey. Yeah, you'll be saying, Do you know, <laughs> we, we used to work three days a week, you'll be saying to them. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, kind of like work ethic of Matt Chorley. Well, crucially, James, uh, you turned up when James Marriott didn't because he's obviously tired and feeling feeble. <laughs> so that's very important. <laughs> James Hill, Harry Wallop, and Indian Knight there. And you can read Harry's piece on thetimes.co.uk all about how work doesn't always need to be fun and catch. India in the Sunday Times. Get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the politics of Blackadder. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. On June the 15th, 1983, Britain first met one of the great political schemers in history. From being married off as part of a military alliance and plotting for preference in the royal court to swinging dodgy by-elections and trying to outwit the commander-in-chief. Edmund Blackadder found himself at the centre of some of the great moments in our history, albeit with a fair amount of artistic and comedic licence. It was a real gang effort who went on to huge fame and success, starring Rowan Atkinson, Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry and Tim McKinnery. Bolgic, his sidekick, ready with a cunning plan during all four series and the specials it followed, was played by Tony Robinson. But it almost didn't happen. Well, it was mad, really. Um, as you can imagine, virtually everybody else in that pilot was part of that ensemble of comedy people who had risen uh, in roughly the same years when they were attending Oxford and Cambridge. And I wasn't. I was just like a bloke, a, funny, a marginally funny actor kind of thing. And with four days to go, they still hadn't got anybody for the part. I don't think they'd given it much thought, quite honestly, because it was a very small part. It's only about eight lines and none of them were funny. And so the head <laughs> of comedy had seen me in something and had written me down in his list of people who were funny. And so I was cast. And it was wonderful for me because I'd always wanted to be involved in that kind of comedy, what I thought at the time of as Oxbridge comedy. You know what I mean? That was the week that was, 40 Towers, not the nine o'clock news. But because I had left school at 16 with four O levels, there was no way I was ever going to be able to break into that lot. So when I just got this script out of the blue, it was wonderful. It was like a dream come true. And we rehearsed for six days. And then the head of comedy came into the room and said, sorry, there's been a strike at the BBC. There was no studio for us. By the time the strike had been resolved, there was such a back backlog that we weren't going to be recorded. So I I went away and got another job. Then they said, hey, we've got the uh, pilot programme after all. But by that time, I was already committed. I was working at the National Theatre, and so I wasn't able to do the pilot. So another actor, Philip Fox, played Baldrick instead. In fact, that lost pilot has only just been unearthed and is the subject of a documentary presented by Tony Robinson this week. The joy of it was that I did lots of interviews with people I know, like Howard Goodall, who wrote the music, Ben, and like Richard and John Lloyd, and asked them questions that I'd, I'd never asked them before. I even had a really long interview with David Mitchell, who was nothing to do with the show, but did make uh, Upstart Crow and was an enormous fan of the show. So his contribution was actually, you know, leavened the show with, with people who weren't particularly experts in it, but could talk about it in a shrewd way. When Blackadder as a series was finally commissioned, Tony Robinson was brought back as Baldrick. The Blackadder was not an instant hit. Set in the late 15th century, it was an imagined history in which King Richard III was accidentally assassinated by his nephew Edmund, whose father, played by Brian Blessed, became Richard IV. Well, in the fourth episode of that series, The Queen of Spain's Beard, geopolitics plays its part. King Richard tries to form an alliance with Spain by marrying Blackadder off to this Spanish infanta, played by Miriam Margulois, with her interpreter played by Jim Broadbent. The plan fails when France and Switzerland form an alliance, so Richard decides it would be better if Blackadder is married to a Hungarian princess instead. Amen! 
many Hungarian princesses in the castle? Oh, yes, Father, I think I've got one. Um, yes, Princess Leia of Hungary. Pour her into the court! And as for that great Spanish dumpling there, get her out of my sight at once, or I'll eat her! Well, the only problem with that plan is the Hungarian princess was just eight years old. Miriam Margolois tells me she remembers playing the Spanish Infanta with fondness, without always knowing quite what was going on. I never knew what it was about, and I never knew what the relationships really were with people. I just knew what I had to do. And it was not the most subtle performance I've ever given. Mind you, I'm not known for subtlety, but it was it was broad and funny. And everybody was adorable. I mean, I was a bit nervous because, you know, I'm, I'm not really a, a comedian. So working with people who were made me a little bit anxious. But uh, Mandy Fletcher, who was the director, such a clever girl, she made it easy. So... We had a lovely time. I remember that uh, Rowan was very nervous and he got very angry with himself if he made a mistake. He didn't often make mistakes, but when he did, he just, he was so angry. But I think he's calmed down a bit now. It was, though, thought a flop and it was cancelled after just one series. Tony Robinson again. There was a conversation between Michael Grade, who was the head of BBC, and John Lloyd, our producer, at the end of which it was agreed that we would be able to do the second series, provided it was as cheap as chips, because they'd spent an awful lot of money on the first series. And I think it was during the time that those conversations were taking place that they thought, well, what, what, we might as well just go to a, a different period, a period which is more recognisable to people. I mean, we were, the first series was about the War of the Roses, and I think you know, if you asked anybody anything about the War of the Roses, War of the Roses, they would just stare back fairly blankly at you. But the Tudor period, everybody knows about, Queen Elizabeth I. So in a way, it seemed a much safer, more rooted period that we could do comedy in. The Tudor court of Elizabeth I proved ripe for the skullduggery in which a more cynical and manipulative Blackadder could operate. <laughs> Fiend, never have I encountered such corrupt and foul-minded perversity! Have you ever considered a career in the church? <laughs> no, I can never get used to the underwear. In that series, Miriam Margulies returned as Lady Whiteadder, the puritanical aunt of Blackadder. He was trying to impress her while simultaneously having a night on the beers with Stephen Fry's Melchard. It seemed to me that everybody was having an erection the whole time. Uh, except me, of course. And whenever I thought anybody was having having an erection, I would um, stamp on them with a turning. Then the politics really kicked in in the third series, set in the Georgian era with Blackadder acting as a butler to Hugh Laurie's Prince Regent. In the first episode, Dish and Dishonesty, the Prince Regent is facing being made bankrupt when he receives a young visitor. Yeah, I bet you can't wait to get back and get that bat in your hand and give those balls a good walloping, eh? <laughs> Mr. Pitt is the Prime Minister. <laughs> oh, go on. Is he? What, young snotty here? I'd rather have a runny nose than a runny brain. Eh? With Pitt the Younger determined to ruin the prince, Blackadder devises a plan to beat him in a by-election in Dunny-on-the-Wold, using Baldrick as the unlikely candidate. I've uh, Jesse Nod, Madam Biggin. Standing at the back dressed stupidly and looking stupid, Potter. <laughs> Nova. 
pit the even younger Whig no votes. Oh, there's a shock. <laughs> Mr. S. Baldrick. Had a party. 16,472. Tony Robinson, explain the history behind that story what they used to call rotten boroughs which I can remember, you know, one of my O-levels, which I just scraped through, was O-level history and we certainly dealt with rotten boroughs then, which basically meant that there were only like about half a dozen people in that borough who were allowed to vote so if you could nobble then you'd get uh, another seat in Parliament so that was what this, uh, this episode outlined. In a particularly surreal twist, the episode featured former BBC political presenter Vincent Hanna supposedly playing his own great-great-great-grandfather as the anchor of TV coverage of the by-election a century before television was invented. We always tried to walk that incredibly dangerous tightrope between being historically ruthlessly accurate and having a good time. It is, I have to say, it is exactly the same tactic that Shakespeare used, that Bertolt Brecht used. You know, you, you talk about current issues, but you do so by setting them in a different time because then, in a way, you can make the satire much clearer. You're, you're not tied down with a lot of uh, uh, present-day minutiae. And I, th- I think that's why it worked. And, yes, of course, it's daft, it's ridiculous to have a, a, um, a, a, a political commentator off the telly and it was played by a political commentator off the telly uh, in that episode but it kind of worked I think. In 1988 there was a festive special Blackadder's Christmas Carol in which moustache salesman Ebenezer Blackadder is the nicest man in London but people take advantage of his good nature and he's visited by a ghost played by Robbie Coltrane who accidentally reveals his predecessors were more ruthless. Of course, with your ancestors, it would have to be the full one-hour ten vision with a break and ice cream. (laughs) Oh, dear, that bad, were they? (laughs) Did nobody tell you? Stinkers to a man. Oh, perhaps you'd like to see. He even gets a visit from Queen Victoria, played by Miriam Margaloys, with her old mate Jim Broadbent as Prince Albert. Yes, that was delightful. I mean, I have a crush on Queen Victoria, so playing her is always a... A bit of a delight. Tony Robinson tells me the mockery of past events actually came from a love of history. Well, I think one of the the great positives about Blackadder from the point of view of people who love history is that it was written by people who love history. I think, you know, all of us, without exception, among that coterie of, say, a dozen people who, who created it, were obsessed by history in general and British history in particular. I mean, you see that at its most rawest in in the final series, which is about the First World War. And uh, Ben Elton in particular was had always been uh, fascinated by the, the First World War, but wanted to make it absolutely clear that what we were taking the mickey out of was not the sacrifice that people made in order to uh, bring that war to a conclusion, but the madness that led to the war being conducted uh, in the way that it was. Blackadder Goes Forth was aired in November 1989. In the final scene, Blackadder, Baldrick George and Captain Darling were seen leaving their trench and going over the top in slow motion while the generals remained far from the front line. Sir? Yes, Lieutenant? I'm scared, sir. I'm scared too, sir. I mean, I'm the last of the tiddly-winking leapfroggers from the golden summer of 1914. I don't want to die. Really... Not over-keen on dying at all, sir. How are you feeling, darling? 
Um, not all that good, Blackadder. Rather hoped I'd get through the whole show. Go back to work at Pratt and Sons. <laughs> Keep wicked for the Croydon gentleman. Married Doris. It was this portrayal of the conflict which saw the show become the subject of political debate. In January 2014, as the centenary of the outbreak of World War I approached, then Education Secretary Michael Gove attacked what he saw as the left-wing myths about the war. He wrote in the Daily Mail, The conflict has, for many, been seen through the fictional prism of dramas such as Oh, What a Lovely War, The Monocled Mutineer and Blackadder as a misbegotten shambles, a series of catastrophic mistakes perpetrated by an out-of-touch elite. I knew the word elite would, would, would crop up in the, uh, in the critique. It usually does, doesn't it? Michael Gove is a very interesting political figure, I think. In many ways, he is very, very intelligent, very adroit, sharp on his feet, particularly within the Tory party. The fact that he has been such a survivor, I think, is, is a remarkable story and one which in itself ought to be made into a television series. But boy, can he be silly. He does say the stupidest things. And indeed, the, the implication behind his criticism of Blackadder was somehow that Teachers were at fault if they brought Blackadder into the classroom because Blackadder was funny and the First World War was very serious. You could equally well say you shouldn't teach the First World War poets to children because they'd think that the First World War rhymed and it clearly didn't. So that was inaccurate too. I mean, it's, it's an absolutely nonsense critique and it fails completely to understand something which as Minister of Education I would have thought would have been at the forefront of his brain, that teaching is about the teacher and their imagination and the tools they use. A responsible teacher can use just about anything in class and transform people's understanding, Blackadder and, and, and anything else. Miriam Margaloys tells me she agrees. Well, I think it's <laughs> I mean, oh, these people, they, they really <laughs> me off. I think it was very witty and, 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 a, and a, a clever sideways commentary on history. I think it made history come to life. And I think it's very good for people to, to experience history in that way. Tony Robinson has now turned his love of history, which we saw again later in the Channel 4 archaeology series Time Team, into a new podcast, Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast, answering questions like, where did pies come from? And what does history smell like? The podcast is a statement about who I am, really, essentially. I've been working with this uh, production company called Zinc. I've done an awful lot of telly with them. And uh, they've become like, you know, work friends. You know that relationship you have with some people. And we all sat around together and they said, what would you like to do next? And I said, I'd love to make a podcast. And they said, well, do it, do it. I said, my problem has always been, I don't know what to do it about because I think everything's important. You know, I'm not, that's not... Sounds a bit posy, but I really genuinely mean that. Uh, I had an old hippie friend who once said, There are no boring things in the world. Everything's interesting because everything is part of that extraordinary adventure of life that we're all on. There are, of course, an infinite number of boring ways of describing those things, and we've all uh, been victim of those descriptions. But it's not the thing itself that's boring, um, it's the way we talk about it. And so, and, and I just kind of wanted to announce that passion for everything and try and imbue other people with it if they hadn't kind of got there yet. And so I chose 
it was almost like 12 things that I thought about that fascinated me when I was driving along in the car. And then when I get home, I would write them down. I've got a list of about 40 now that we could, <laughs> and we, you know, we're just sort of planning the timing of the second series. But, you know, we could go on to series five without even looking for more. And that's what I've tried to do. And you say that I've kind of tried to imbue them with history. Well, that's for me, because Everything is imbued with history, just as it's imbued with geography and sociology and math and physics. You know, they're all part of a description of anything in the whole wide world. History just happens to be the one that I find easiest to key into. Matt on Times Radio, taking a look at the politics of Blackadder 40 years after the first series aired. And what's striking about the team behind Blackadder is many of the young actors, comedians and writers went on to actually have intensely political careers. Rowan Atkinson, who played Blackadder, rarely speaks publicly as himself, but has made an exception to campaign for freedom of speech. Writer and creator Ben Elton's best known for his political stand-up and continues to speak out on political issues, as he did on this show last year. Being called a hypocrite, what vote Labour and can still can still own clothes and food, you know, <laughs> um, you know, having a hopefully having some kind of social conscience, believing that we are a community, that we are a welfare state, in as much as we try and help each other. I don't think precludes you from also having a successful life. I never pretended to be a communist, but I'm definitely a lefty in terms of Clement Attlee, NHS welfare state. Uh, social democracy yeah. but, but but out of selfishness I always say the same thing you know you don't want to have had a lovely meal maybe have a bottle of champagne in a nice restaurant you walk out of the restaurant and there's someone literally sitting in the doorway that ruins your night Stephen Fry's a serial campaigner and once even toyed with the idea of becoming an MP so I asked Tony Robinson who once sat on the National Executive of the Labour Party if he'd ever thought about running for Parliament after his experiences Baldrick winning the Dunny on the Wold by-election I did, yeah, quite seriously I did um, when I was in my late 30s and my partner with whom I had two kids said to me, look, we made an agreement that we would share the parenting of these children. Uh, it's bad enough you going away when you're performing. As a uh, as an MP, I would never see you. If you want to be an MP, then wait till the kids have grown up, which was, I think, very sensible and mature advice and and it's one of the few good bits of advice i think i've 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 ever accepted but by the time the kids were grown up i i i really i wasn't interested in in being an mp but what about today's current crop of politicians does keir starmer need to be more of a schemer like blackadder i think every leader if there are going to be any good and 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 survive have to walk a tightrope between integrity and, and manipulation the the muscles that Keir Starmer used in order to, in order to turn the Labour Party round he wasn't just nice you know he didn't say to people in momentum actually I'm leader now would you would it be all right if you stepped down from the <laughs> positions of power that you're currently in because um, it would certainly help me no it was it was bare knuckles it was making sure that your people were in the right room at the right time to vote the right way all those real politics things which you know which tony blair quite honestly was a past master at which mrs thatcher was very good at miriam margloff so she also once thought about a political career i think i did at one time a long time ago and I, I, in a way, I wish I had, because I'd be a damn sight better than this shower. 
And Blackadder's co-writer, Richard Curtis, who joined from Series 2 onwards, has since enjoyed huge success with TV shows and films worldwide. But politics has always been there too, getting involved in campaigns from Red Nose Day to make poverty history and even sustainable pensions. Well, a couple of years ago on the show, I spoke to Richard for our feature, If I Ruled the World, and I asked him about why, instead of relaxing on a beach and counting his money, he could not resist the lure of the political world. Uh, do you know, it's because it turned out to work so well. I, mean, I remember the first Red Nose Day, we thought we'd make 5 million and we made 15 million. And the second one, we made 27 million. So, you know, my experience has taught me that if you do, you know, say to people, here's an opportunity to do the right thing, most people want to do it. So I've just found myself in this position because of my comedy and, you know, the things I've done to actually just endlessly benefit from the generosity of the public. And it's a sort of addictive thing, but I, I can't see how I could step away. And if we're putting you in charge of the country, what, what's been your experience in interacting with, because in a lot of these cases, you have interacted with world leaders from all over the world. What's been your experience of, you know, coming from a world of entertainment and rubbing up against politicians? Do you like politicians? Do you have sympathy for them? Do they all wind you up? Well, I think one of the key things with me is trying not to appear to be more intelligent than I am. I mean, if I ruled the world, the first thing I'd do is change the constitution so people like me couldn't rule the world. I think that'd be very important. <laughs> But I do think that one of the things with politicians is trying to, you know, communicate what they're doing in a way, you know, more attractively. So on the sustainable development goals, which is the big thing I've been working on with the UN, you know, we help try and give them good graphics and make them more passionate and make films about them. So I think one of the things that I would do, I'd ask to be in charge of comms you know, and actually try and create opportunities for change. We're putting you in charge. Are you going to be a dictator? Do you have a cabinet around you? Who's going to be in your team? You can have anyone, living living or dead, politician or otherwise. Oh, my God. Do you need a Black that... Adder character that's going to do all the, you know, the, 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 the dirty work away from prying eyes? <laughs> uh, no, I've never read a political biography in my life. There's a guy called Thomas Clarkson, who actually was the key figure in abolishing slavery. I think that I'd put him in charge of things. Stormzy would have an enormously important position. Uh, and uh, my daughter, Scarlett Curtis, would replace me um, at the turn of the year. <laughs> very good, very good. Now, well, I was going to say, because all political um, careers end in failure, of course, famously, what would be your <laughs> vice? What, what would be the thing that inevitably forced you out of office? Why would you... What, inability, what, what? Inability, inability to remember facts. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I mean, that's I not a know. cause. I think we know from, from recent <laughs> history that's not necessarily cause of resignation. No, but, well, actually, yes. Maybe I'd be celebrated for the fact that I never knew the facts in the first place rather than that I lied about them. Richard Curtis speaking to me on the show a couple of years ago. Bringing to the end our look at the politics of Blackadder. And, of course, you can watch all of the brilliant series that we've been discussing. All four series are available on the BBC iPlayer. And that brings us to the end of our look at 40 years of Black Alley. You can catch Tony Robinson's cunning cast wherever you get your podcast from. And his documentary on the Lost Pilot episode is on gold tonight. That's Friday night at nine o'clock. Do get in touch with any comments about the podcast. Rate and review us wherever you get them from so that it helps with the charts or something. Or you can email me, matt, at times.radio. But for now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.